take your Bibles and turn again to Luke chapter 12. Um, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper this morning, so I'll be sensitive to that and try to um, be maybe a little briefer with my time here, but um, I think that we're going to look at two pretty important verses today, and verses that I think are often misunderstood in Luke chapter 12. Um, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. Um, I want to begin reading, though, just to read into it, since we're only looking at two verses, back in verse 1, and kind of read into the text this morning, uh, just to pick up a little bit of the flavor of this uh, dialogue between Jesus and His disciples. That, that's how it begins. So, it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so that they trampled one another, He began to say to His disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And that's as far as we'll go. So, the way that I approached this last week was to tell you that I wanted to come to Luke chapter 12 on the heels of 1 Corinthians, mainly because of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, where we deal with the resurrection chapter. And as we were kind of going through that, and I know we spent you know a handful of weeks there in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection. And as we were kind of going through that, it really struck me that um, there, there seemed to be those in the Corinthian church who thought that they could forfeit the resurrection as a, as a doctrine, as a belief, as something, the resurrection of Jesus is something essential. They thought that they could do away with that for whatever reason. Um, perhaps they saw it as superstition or maybe they thought it would be, you know, an, an, an unfavorable opinion to have in the Greek world. Um, but they thought they could do away with that and that it would not compromise whatever else they thought the Christian religion was. And Paul deals with that pretty firmly in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, without the belief in the resurrection of Jesus, uh, there, there, there is no Christian faith. And it really struck me as I was going through that, that um, there is a way of viewing the world that relies upon 
the resurrection being essential to our Christian perspective. But then there's also a way that I think has become popular viewing the world, in part because of how large the church is in the Western world today, where you can almost be Christian without holding to this uh, Christian teaching of the resurrection. In other words, you can go to church and you can um, carry a Bible with you and uh, you can uh, do good things and acknowledge things that are bad and do this faithfully for a long period of time um, and yet not really live with the perspective of life that is fueled by the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. And I think these are almost um, uh, combative worldviews, combative perspectives. I, th I don't think they live well with each other. Um, and I think it can create a lot of tension. And I don't, I don't know how many people um, plan when they profess that Jesus is Lord, plan to eventually settle into a form of Christianity whereby our Christian faith is more about doing good things and being good people than about living with the perspective of the resurrection. I don't know how many people plan to kind of distance themselves from a resurrection worldview, but I do know what happens and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to serve Jesus becomes relegated to this really, we might borrow the, the term from the book of Revelation, this lukewarm existence of being sensitive enough to the things of God that at times the temperature gets turned up a little bit in our lives and, and we're confronted maybe with a powerful message or a powerful song or a, a, a desperate situation in life, whatever it is, where we're confronted with you know, the real fire and zeal that at one time we had with regards to our faith in Jesus Christ. But apart from these times when the temperature gets turned up, the water is basically pouring into a cold, a cold basin. Um, a, and, and what you get is this kind of lukewarm, yeah, I know what I should be, but I'm okay. And I think that's kind of the idea with being lukewarm in the first place. I'm okay with what I am. I, I know what I should be. I know the words of Jesus. I know what the Bible calls me to. I have kind of dipped my toe into the water of what it would be to live like that in the past. But this is more comfortable. It's almost like uh, not being in the water at all. I, I, I don't know if it was a movie or an interview that I was listening to at one point in time, but they described a, a place that you could go to in, um, um, you know, somewhere in the you know, middle part of, of the globe where the, the weather is always warm. And, and where, when you got into the water, the water was the exact same temperature as the air, and it was almost as if you weren't even walking into it. And, and they were describing it as like a, an awesome thing. And, and I was thinking, well... That kind of comfortability with Christ, that kind of lukewarm comfortability should be an alarming thing to the Christian. Because, and, and this is really the rub here, because of the desperate way that Jesus seems to view the world and the people in the world. I mean, to, to read from the Gospels, Jesus' view and understanding of the world, which, I mean, if we have the faith to believe it, is the view of God. To read that perspective from the Gospels is such a contrast to over decades of Christian service, what can become the way that we live our lives. Um, and so I was really drawn to Luke chapter 12 in particular. I mean, what do you do as a...
pastor, if you kind of want to deal with this subject, you, you know, we're probably not going to start at the beginning of Luke and, and <laughs> power all the way through it. But I thought, you know, this is an opportunity between now and and Easter and the time that I have with you to to go straight from this subject that we've dealt with at the end of the letter to the Corinthians and into something that I hope, I really do hope that it it cuts a little a little deep. Um, it does to me. And these are things that I'm wrestling with even right now in my life. It, it cuts. And I hope that you don't escape the pain of that by insulating yourself from it with some misconception that, well, this doesn't apply. Or, well, I can, I can reason this away somehow. Um, it can't be reasoned away. And, and you see in the, in the opening part of Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and you can get a sense of the way he is viewing the world in terms of death and resurrection. Uh, you see it in here. Verse 4 says, My friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Um, be afraid of him who has killed and has the power to cast into hell. You see Jesus viewing the world and even counseling his disciples, who at this point, so... So near the end, he's calling friends openly. He's counseling them, you should not be concerned with the possibility, the fragility, the frailty of your circumstances here on the earth. You should be concerned about the one who can cast you into hell on the other side of what you experience down here on the earth. The earth is implicitly uh, fragile. It is all dust to dust and ashes to ashes. And whether you want to watch the news and see what's happening in the rest of the world or whether you want to visit the hospital, either one would do you just as well. The, 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 there's nothing in this world that is not fragile and frail. And Jesus sees the world through those perspectives uh, that perspective, and this is his counsel, it's not live in fear of evil or live in fear of evil people or live in fear of what might befall you. And this is really where we were last week, but verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is before is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. In other words, your value to God is not based on whatever your earthly circumstances tend to be. He's, when he says every sparrow is known to God, I mean, think about what he's actually saying there. Does God save every sparrow from dying? He, he's not trying to encourage them by saying, well, look, you're more valuable than sparrows. Sparrows die all the time, so God's not going to let anything bad happen to you. That's not what he's saying. On the contrary, he's acknowledging death is real. You are going to die. Sparrows die. You're going to die. But you're more valuable to God than sparrows. And that here he sent his son to have a relationship with you. He knows you. He, and that's where the counsel is. Every hair on your head is numbered. He knows you personally, intimately. In other words, your value is not based on the longevity of your life or what you can acquire for yourself, but your true value is based on the relationship you have with this Creator. I don't think that that's easy to accept practically. When we live in a world that is very concerned about net worth or cultural credibility or what side of, what side of an aisle or a stance that you stand on, Living in a way, a person who lives a life in a way to where they are truly evaluating their self-worth based on their relationship to the Almighty God is going to look very different from everyone else in the world. 
Um, we get to this interesting part in verse 8, and it really leads into 11 and 12. It says, Also I say, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. Again, this is resurrection timeline here. This is on the other side of death. What you do now matters on the other side. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. We talked on this last week. We touched on it. The idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is what the Pharisees were doing. They were looking at the, the miracles that Jesus was performing. And they weren't even arguing these aren't miracles. They were arguing this is some demonic spirit that's doing this. And Jesus draws a line in the sand and says, when a person is attributing the healing of a man in the name of God to the work of a demon, they're revealing something about the state of their soul. And now we get into verse 11 and 12, and it's just two verses, and I want to read them to you because I think that they're often misunderstood. Verse 11 says, Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer, or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, let's break that down and into just two sections. Because again, I'm not trying to... I'm trying to be brief because I don't want to rush through the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. The first thing that stands out to me there in verse 11 is the word they. They. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities. Clearly the context here is you're my disciples and you're going to face opposition and people will bring you before these leaders to put you on trial, to question you. And the word is they. We also use the word they sometimes in an ambiguous way. I have heard people say, you know what they're doing, right? Or, you know what they really want, right? Or, <laughs> you, you know, they are doing this. And, and sometimes you pause and you say, well, hold, just, can you, who is they? I'm just curious. Who is, who is this sinister group? What, who are these people? And they kind of, in our own vernacular, becomes a catch-all for the boogeyman where we know there are people or entities out there doing bad things, but we can't describe them, so they all fall into this category of they. And oftentimes they are doing things, but we speak of the they's in that sense as, you know, almost an ambiguous enemy out there. You know, we need to take a stand, or we need to do this, or we need to do that. When Jesus says they here, he's not talking about make-believe people. These aren't, this isn't his version of the boogeyman. When he says they, he has in mind the same they from Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Now I want to read those verses to you. Now listen closely for the they. You'll catch it. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now, do you see who the they are there? 
when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The they in Luke 12 are the, what, the bad characters who are going to drag his disciples in front of tribunals and but the they in Luke or in Matthew 9 are the sheep without a shepherd whom he has compassion on. You say, well, how do we know those are the same they's? How do we know in Luke 12 Jesus doesn't have one group of they's in mind, uh, the bad characters, the bad apples, the enemies, and in the other passage in Matthew 9, the they are the good guys or the potential good guys. You know, those who are like sheep without a shepherd. Well, the short answer of it is we know that because of the instances we see in the Bible of the Luke 12, 11, and 12 groups of people. In the Bible, when we see this unfold, this disciple of Jesus on trial, the they who are trying them are the same they whom Jesus is trying to save and showing compassion towards. Uh, just, I'll give you several examples of these this morning to think about. The first one is the Lord Himself who in Luke 23, 34 after he has been nailed to a cross and raised up in the air and a crowd is shouting crucify him and cheering his demise, says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And then they divided his garments and cast lots. The bad guys in Luke 23 who are crucifying the Lord after beating him and scourging him and demanding his death and are now jeering him and even in the process of this statement of compassion are playing games to have his clothing. The bad guys are the they whom the Lord is having compassion on asking that their bad deeds not be held against them in the mind of God for they don't understand. And yet that they don't understand what they're doing. That's the idea of the Matthew 9. They're like sheep without a shepherd, lost and wandering. They don't know. In Matthew 9, after Jesus has compassion because they're weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd, verse 37, he turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When Jesus looks at the they who need to be saved, the they who will persecute his people and be antagonistic to the message, when he looks at them, he sees them as the object of work and labor for his people. The idea is, many of them would be saved. Many of them would not be cast into eternal hell by the one who would take their life. 
if the laborers were out in the field working. The harvest is plentiful. And then he bemoans to his disciples, but the laborers are few. This is a common theme you'll see in these sorts of interactions as we read. To emphasize the point here, in Ephesians chapter 6, you can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen. But Paul is, is speaking about this um, relationship that we have in the world with believers and non-believers. And he says very clearly in verse 11 of Ephesians 6, this is a familiar passage. Some of you, your eyes will glaze over as I read it, but I want you to stay with me for the payoff at the end. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Why is Paul saying that? Because the temptation is there to believe that we wrestle against flesh and blood. Why is that temptation there? Because the antagonism of the devil is unfolding in flesh and blood. People who earlier in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 are described as those who are merely following after the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, slaves to their own sin, are ambivalent to the idea that they are actually performing Satan's will in antagonizing the gospel, and yet they are. And Paul now counsels the Ephesians in chapter 6, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. Yes, flesh and blood will drag you before the synagogue and the court. Flesh and blood will slide your meals through a jail cell. Flesh and blood will spit at you and mock you and belittle you and badmouth you. Flesh and blood will stone you. It's real human hands that beat Jesus in the face when he was arrested. Real human hands that took up a hammer and nailed him down. And yet Paul has the audacity to say, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are taking a gospel message to flesh and blood. Above all, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Faith will persevere. As flesh and blood takes Satan's best shot at you. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints and for me. Now here it is. This is Paul. This is the payoff. That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And I hope you hear in Paul the echo of what we heard from the Lord. That 
The they, the them, represent a harvest that is plentiful and the laborers are few. And Paul himself, who had lived this and experienced this, is telling the Ephesians, pray for me that I may... Look at how many different ways he says it. That utterance may be given to me. That I may open my mouth boldly. <laughs> he says in verse 20, I am an ambassador that in it I may speak boldly and to punctuate it, he uses the phrase, as I ought to speak. Christians ought to speak. And when they do, the words that come out of their mouth should not be words targeted at combating flesh and blood. When they speak, it should be as ambassadors of Jesus Christ proclaiming a gospel of peace from the God that the people don't believe in. I want to consider now verse 12 where we hear the phrase in Luke, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I think if we are not careful, we will imagine that that is saying something it's not saying. I think that what we might be tempted to imagine is that when we are put to the test, whether it's a synagogue of our fellow religious people or whether it's a workplace or whether it's a trial or whatever the authorities are, the last name he mentions are authorities, I think what we might be tempted to imagine is that it's saying when you're in that situation, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say to defend yourself and to get out of it. But that's not what we see in the Scriptures. We don't see the Spirit of God giving words to people when they're in their moment of trial in order to save their skin. And that's not what we see in the mission field. And it's not what you'll see either if you simply stay on gospel message. You will not be saying things that will save you. You'll be saying things to save them. The they's that brought you there in the first place. You can consider Jesus before Pilate who is telling this person who's trying him that he is in fact the son of God that he does in fact have a kingdom and saying to Pilate the people who brought me here have the greater sin than you <laughs> who is reasoning with Pilate the Jesus who we've read is asking for the forgiveness of those who are crucifying him but I want to read two other two other stories to you from the Bible today I, you can turn there and read along too the first one is from Acts chapter 7 and I'm mostly just going to read these. We're not going to have a long lesson through them. But Acts chapter 7, 16 verses from Acts chapter 7. We pick up in the middle of Stephen's great defense of himself. Now Stephen had been doing the great evil of preaching about Jesus and doing good works in Jesus' name. And for that he's brought before the high priest and a council. And he's being questioned and accused. And he gives an unprepared, wonderful...
defense of the gospel of Jesus. And it doesn't turn out to be a very effective defense of Stephen. But it is a wonderful defense of the gospel. And he's really reaching the peak of his argument in verse 44. Remember, he's on trial because he believes that God visited the earth in Christ and dwelled with men and was crucified and resurrected. This is Stephen's, this is what he's defending. And in verse 44, he tells the high priest and the council listening, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he, that's God, appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles. Now he's talking about the place where God dwelt, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and now he's saying they brought that same thing into the promised land. Whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. Jacob says, let's take this tabernacle. Sorry, David says, let's take this tabernacle and let's make a temple. But Solomon built him a house. That's the temple where the Spirit of God dwelt, where these priests had the center of their livelihood. And Stephen says, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Amen? As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? These are words to David. When David first inquired, has my hand not made all these things? You want to build a house for me, David? A house? Can you contain me? And this is the point Stephen is making. And then verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. This is the great defense that the Holy Spirit is giving Stephen to speak here. His life is on the line. Here are the words he's bringing to Stephen's mouth. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they, there's those they's again, they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart that's what the Holy Spirit of God does. It wounds. Not like a bomb wounds. You know, when a bomb explodes, it kills indiscriminately. It just does damage. But when you are convicted by the Word of God, it is like a surgical strike. There are no civilian casualties. It is sin and pride, shame, those things are sliced open. Why would the Holy Spirit slice the hearts of this crowd? Why wouldn't the Holy Spirit give Stephen words to save himself? Why would God need to save a man who is already saved? Stephen's already saved. Now, we see what happens here. 
He cries out, verse 55, But he, being full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopping up their ears. What a sign, right? That words could hurt so much. And ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Why? Because they are the ones that the Holy Spirit is working to save. They are not Stephen's enemy. They are his mission field. So when we read, don't worry about what you'll say when you're dragged before judges. You don't need to plop down a white-collar, multi-million dollar defense of yourself. The Holy Spirit will give you words to say that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit will give you words to save your flesh or to save your money or to save your pride or reputation. The Holy Spirit will save those that are lost. You are already saved. And nothing that you stand to inherit can be taken from you by any council, by any jury. One of the men standing there Holding coats is, famously, Saul. One of the people cut to the heart. One of them is him. And he himself finds himself on trial. If you turn over to Acts 26, we'll read that passage. Then Agrippa, this is Herod Agrippa, whose dad had already martyred several of Jesus' disciples earlier in the book of Acts and himself died infamously. This Agrippa, his son, is more sensitive to these things. Paul, who was the same Saul who was saved previously, is now called upon, again, without preparation, because this was a visitor who said, I think I'd like to hear from him. Paul, who'd been arrested by... Felix and handed over to Festus is now being called on to give an account to Agrippa who's the king <laughs> and Agrippa calls Paul again before he Agrippa is the they that's dragging him before all the people to give an account and he says to Paul you're permitted to speak for yourself okay spirit of God help me <laughs> help me I don't have a I didn't know I was going to do this today Help me. What does the Spirit of God do? Verse 2. <laughs> Listen to this. This does not sound like a man under arrest. Listen. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. He was. His father was one of the Herods. His grandfather, the Herod the Great, he knew the Jewish faith, whereas these other Roman 
consuls and governors who Paul had been talking to. This was all just mysticism to them. Paul says, I am fortunate to have an audience with you, king of the Jews, Herod. Therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know he was a well-known guy. They know me from the first, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand and I am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God day and night, hoped to attain. For this hope's Sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? If he's God, why should it be incredible that he can do miraculous things? Why would you want to serve a God who can't do miraculous things? Why is this some incredible idea? Indeed, I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Thus I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul was one of them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was one of them that Stephen is praying for as he dies. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against these goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When you don't know what to say to people about your Christian faith, just tell them how you used to be. Just tell them the moment that you were broken and realized that you were a sinner that was going to hell and what an awful, desperate, sinful, and wicked human being you were when the Lord decided that you were worth saving. That's a great default position to go to. So I said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister <laughs> and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. Paul, you are now going to be commissioned to go after the Vims. The ones who are in darkness who will try to persecute you and I will deliver you only to this end that you are a laborer for their salvation. And you will turn them from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. The people trying to kill you will be saved. 
and they will receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as thus he made his defense, Festus, <laughs> the guy who's hosting King Agrippa, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Your much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. And now you watch Paul as he labors to convert the grandson of the Herod who tried to murder Jesus by slaying thousands of children and the son of Herod who condemned Jesus to crucifixion at the Passover and martyred two of his disciples. And now we find the target, Herod Agrippa of Paul, when he says, For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in the corner. And in the middle of the crowd, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Now these are not words from the Holy Spirit meant to save Paul. <laughs> Paul is already saved. These are words meant to save Agrippa. Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Part of living with a resurrection view of the world is realizing that you have already been saved. You don't stand to lose anything. The only thing that you stand to lose is the treasure that you're not supposed to be in love with anyway. Is the life that you already said you were laying down and sacrificed to God. If you have your inheritance in heaven, if you are a son of the living God, you don't have to be afraid. And that's what Jesus is saying in Luke 12. Don't fear those who can take your life. All the bad guys throughout history, all the bad guys today, you don't have to be afraid of them if you're a Christian. Fear the one 
who after he takes your life will cast you into hell for the sinner that you are and respond with faith in Jesus Christ who has died to pay for your sin and bring you into an eternal inheritance, an inheritance of life, a peace with God. If you don't have this message on your lips, you are not living with the resurrection worldview. You don't have anything to fear about talking to the people that you work with. Every harassment video that I've ever watched from HR has at some point portrayed the snobby Christian who says judgmental things to the co-worker. I've never seen the harassment video about the the snobby, you know, Muslim. They must not exist. But every harassment video that my company has ever forced me to watch has had this caricature of a Christian who cares about his or her co-workers. And that's all it is, is a caricature. I've never met the person in real life. You can't be afraid of your company. What can they do to you? They can't starve you. You can't be afraid of your customers. What can they do to you? They can't take anything away from you. You can't be afraid of the world. But you should be afraid of the God that you will meet after death. And you should not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth, lest He be ashamed of you before the angels of heaven. You have to live with a resurrection worldview, and this, I think, is what Paul means when he says, without the resurrection, we are of all people most pitiable. As we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I suppose I wasn't as brief as I wanted to be. But I do pray and I ask and by faith I believe that these are words from your Spirit perhaps to save those who are here today. I don't know. Perhaps to save those who all of us here today will meet tomorrow. Father, there's a reason why the disciples ask for boldness to speak. Why Paul seems to indicate some shame, even in Ephesians 6, that he knows how he ought to speak and yet is often compelled by the flesh to be silent. There's a reason why Peter ran on the night of the arrest of your son. We are human beings and we know our frailty. We know how fragile the life that we live truly is, how quickly things can be taken away, how discreetly we can be robbed, how publicly we can be shamed, how viciously our character can be assaulted, and we don't want any of that. We, we want to love people and we want to be loved by others. But where does that leave us when loving others means that we can't be loved by them? Father, I ask that you give us courage and boldness to speak that that front door will be a revolving door of people who have heard the gospel from our lips. And for whatever time they come in there and among us, that when they go out, they're taking the gospel with them. This is my hope and prayer. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.